Last week, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 11, and chapter 11 closes the loop on some brewing relational dynamics that started in chapter 10. So we're going to double back, and we're going to look at some of the first challenges that Saul faced after he was anointed as king. So let's begin by reading the closing verses of chapter 10, and then we're going to pray. Verse 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Father, please speak to our hearts, guide us, encourage us, give us wisdom Lord, this morning, we are looking for wisdom from your word in dealing with relational challenges in a Christ-like way, in a wise way. So, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts as we go through these passages, we ask in Jesus' name. First thing we come to is dealing with despisers. Saul had just been anointed king. He had not yet done anything at all, good or bad. But there were some whose first reaction to him was to despise him. How can this man save us? They scoffed. The Hebrew word translated despise means to look down on, to hold in contempt, to scorn. There will always be despisers, people who sit on the sidelines and their first reaction is contempt, is scorn, is to mock. They sit on the sidelines and they judge and they criticize anyone who attempts anything worth attempting. There will always be critics who don't enter the fray don't try to solve the problems, but think they know better than anyone else what, how it should be done. And it reminded me of the famous speech Theodore Roosevelt gave where he said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or woman, who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while, doing, while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. First thing to be said this morning for us is let's not be that person. Let's not be that person who sits on the sidelines. Let's not be the Monday morning quarterback who criticizes 
those on the field from the comfort of the sidelines. Let's not be this person who second guesses other people's decisions while not, never carrying the weight or the responsibility of actually having to make those decisions. We don't want to be that person. Saul had not done anything yet to lose their respect. But disrespecting others came naturally to these people. I say that because it, it calls them Belial, worthless fellows. So in other words, disrespecting him and mocking him and scorning him was not a reaction to him doing something worthy of being scorned. It was their character. That it was the natural bend of their heart to disrespect others, to look down on others, to be contemptuous of others. That was their first reaction. And so rather than cheering Saul on, rather than praying for him, rather than trying to help him succeed, their first reaction was to predict his failure. How can this man save us? Let's be sure, let's make sure we're not that person. Amen? Let's not be that person. And by the way, every one of these things, we can all have these things going in our heart. So we need to watch out. If we find ourselves criticizing people, sitting on the sidelines, well, they did not, they did let's, let's be careful. Let's make sure we're not that person. But let's also not let despisers stop us from going forward with what God puts in our hearts to do. Now, I want to say very carefully, we want to be open both to counsel from others and criticism from others. We want to hear counsel and criticism because both can help us make wiser decisions. But this was not well-intentioned criticism. This was just 100% negativity. It's all it was. He can't do it. He's a failure. He shouldn't even try. Who does he think he is? How can this man save us? Here's what Saul did about his despisers. It says he held his peace. Literally, literally, it means he was deaf to their words. He was deaf. He did not get angry. He didn't argue. He didn't lie awake thinking about ways he could prove them wrong. He was deaf to their words. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, in a message titled The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear, actually encourages his listeners to develop a blind eye and a deaf ear to what people think or say about us. In this sense, he warns us not to be obsessed with what people say or think about us. And he likens the person who's consumed with finding out if anything was ever said about them critical, if anybody's ever gossiped about them, if anybody's ever thought something bad about them. He likens them to a spider who, and this is what he says, begins to cast out his lines and fashions a web of tremulous threads, all of which lead up to himself and warn him of the least touch of the tiniest gnat. 
There he sits in the center, a mass of sensation, all nerves and raw wounds, excitable and excited. You get the picture. You get the picture of the person who's always trying to figure out, did they say something? Are they thinking something? Are they, what are they? It's like you've got these webs, and you know what a spider does. If there's any tingle on it, they, they think there's a fly or there's some kind of insect caught on it. So they're waiting for any vibration to tell them, well, this is the person who's like, what, did, did, did I just feel the web tingle? Did someone just say something bad about me? Is somebody thinking something unkind about me? Why is the web vibrating? What's so-and-so saying about me? What's so-and-so thinking about me? The web is tingling. And that, that becomes all we think about. We live in that place if we go down that road, paralyzed from doing anything. Here's the truth. We all think thoughts all the time. And there's always going to be people who think thoughts. Now, in this case, with the despisers, they're actually thinking horrible thoughts and gossiping among themselves and all that. But the truth is, we all think thoughts about, you know, I'm... My thought this morning is, man, I thought the worship team just sounded so beautiful. Your thought might be, man, this sermon just isn't hitting at home at all. Are you thinking that? (laughs) We all think thoughts. We all say things. You know? I feel like, uh, you know, Susan had a bad hair day. I mean, in other words, what does it really matter The final day, only God's thoughts and his opinion is really going to count. As we go through life, listen, we should absolutely seek out the opinions and thoughts of other people. People that we respect. People that, we, that come to us. Quite honestly, criticism from somebody can be a gift from God. Amen? To hear criticism from somebody when it's given, even if it's not given perfectly, even if they're angry and, you know, I feel like this and that. Well, God, is there something in that criticism you have for me? We want to hear. But the fact is there are people who live to criticize and love to despise. They feel bigger when they make other people look smaller. They resent others' successes. They privately cheer for others to fail. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be paralyzed by those people. So don't let the fear of criticism stop you from stepping out or attempting great things for God and new things in life. Let's not let the fear of failure stop us from trying new adventures or stepping into new roles. Saul didn't. And when we anchor identity in God and what he thinks and says about us, and we continue moving forward as he leads us, we may, we may win some of our detractors over to our side. Saul did that as well. Second point, dealing with dividers. As we read last week in chapter 11, 
Nahash the Ammonite attacks Jabesh Gilead, and Saul, filled with the Spirit and with anger, a righteous anger, he was able to rally a fractured and disunified Israel to come together and fight and defeat the Ammonites. And so now we're on the other side of the victory. Those who supported Saul return to the subject of those who despised King Saul. Chapter 11, verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Here's what they're saying. Let's divide Israel into two camps. Those who supported Saul and those who didn't. And let's execute all those who didn't support Saul or want him to be king. But verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go up to Gigal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gigal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. <clears throat> so, You've got these people who have supported Saul from the beginning suddenly saying, let's put those who didn't support him to death. And Saul could have let his success go to his head. He could have let the fervency and enthusiasm of his supporters sway him to follow what they were suggesting. He also could have used this as an opportunity to pay back those who despised him. But to his credit, Saul saw the big picture. God had given them a great victory. Not only a great military victory, overcoming their enemy, but also a great national victory in taking a, a nation, a people that were fractured and disunified. They were fighting within and brought them together and unified them together. God was doing something great. Saul saw that and he saw the only way to end this day is with praise and rejoicing to God. Not by putting some people to death. We're going to end this day with a song of praise. Not an execution. He didn't allow his supporters to divide Israel into camps and factions again. Now just very quickly, by the way, all of this could be literally easily two messages. But <clears throat> So I'm not going to say everything that can be said about these subjects, but... I, want, I, do, I do want to make it clear, there are legitimate issues over which believers, Christians, do need to divide from others over. If someone denies the Bible, the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible, if someone denies the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the only means by which man can be saved, as Paul said, if, if even an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be a curse. That's a little bit divisive there. So if someone says, hey, we're a church, we love God, we don't believe Jesus is the only way, we don't think the word of God is inspired, but we're, you know, it's like, hey. So here's where we have to be really careful. We don't get angry, we don't hate 
on them. We love them. We respect them. We pray for them. But we're not brothers and sisters. I got to tell you, that's not the Christian faith. That's error. And I can't, I can love you and be a friend, but I can't fellowship in Christian fellowship. We can't join arms in Christian ministry together. There are divisive, there are things that need to divide us, truth and Jesus, and, you know, we, we stand firm on those things. But the reality is there are many lesser things that people want to divide and chop the church up into camps and factions and divisions over. And we cannot divide over every dispute and every difference. Paul wrote to churches dealing with serious differences, serious issues, serious sins, and rather than chopping them and slicing and dicing them into camps, he urged them to be united with one heart and mind and soul in love through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Christian community has to give grace for people to see things differently and also to be in different places in their sanctification and have different convictions about secondary practices and doctrines. And that's exactly where forbearance and humility and love come in. Saul refused to retaliate against those who despised him. He refused to humiliate those who were his overzealous supporters. He tried to draw a line that neither humiliated one side or retaliated against the other. Instead, he pointed them all to what God had done. This is what God has done. And he united them under what God had done and it says they all rejoiced, they all gave offerings to God. That includes those who at one point had despised Saul. He won them over. At the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was narrowly reelected as President of the United States, as president of a wounded and divided nation. Many in the South thought him a vulgar tyrant. Many in the North thought he had mismanaged the war horribly and caused a great deal more damage to the country than needed to happen. People in both the North and the South considered him coarse and unpresidential. The black leader Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass opposed Abraham's reelection because Douglass hoped to see someone elected who was more passionately anti-slavery. And so he opposed Abraham Lincoln's re-election. As Lincoln stood up to give his second inaugural address, he stood up to address, he stood up to heal a nation divided. 700 words, just a few minutes long. We could use that today with some of our, you know, speeches given. But he didn't boast of his successes. He didn't rail against his opponents. He didn't claim God was on his side and judging and against 
the other side. Instead, he claimed both sides shared culpability for the horror the nation had endured and suggested the war may have been God's judgment on the whole nation for the evil of slavery. And he said the way forward was with malice toward none, with charity for all. At the end of the speech, Lincoln's political foe, Frederick Douglass, made his way to the president to shake his hand. When Lincoln saw him, he said, here comes my friend Douglas. Douglas responded, Mr. Lincoln, that was a sacred effort. A message of unity helped promote healing to a wounded nation. So let's reject the spirit of camps and divisiveness that's growing both inside and outside the church and seek instead, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, to maintain the unity of the spirit. And the third point we come to is dealing with downright toxic people. And if you're wondering who is the toxic person in this account, well, the answer is Nahash. He is a toxic, even among enemies and pagan leaders, and he's toxic. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1a to 2. The men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. That's the treaty. Nahash represents people you can't reason with, people you cannot make a treaty with. He was cruel. He was malicious. He was toxic. And all he wanted was to shame and hurt Israel. In other words, there was no good side to Nahash. There was no kind side to Nahash in this particular scenario. There was no, oh, you know, if we just talked a little bit longer. He wanted something. He wanted their harm, their damage, their disfigurement, their disgrace. That's what he wanted. You can't make a treaty with that. Again, I want to be careful. People are not toxic. We want to be careful about that, that label. I mean, I was thinking about, I've been in the church for a long time, decades. I really don't know that I would label, I've had disagreements. I've had people that I thought, you know, hmm, I'm not sure that's the most helpful. Toxic is a label I would slow, very, be very slow to put on somebody. <clears throat> People are not toxic because they disagree with us. People are not toxic because they annoy us or because they're unkind or they're obnoxious or sinful. Toxic is a Nahash-like commitment to hurt and shame and destroy other people. It's an agenda of harm. That's toxic. And there are toxic people who, and God can change them, but in their toxicity, all they want is to hurt, shame, and destroy other people. And we should love and pray for them, but from a distance. That's my encouragement to us today. As a noun, toxic refers to a poison, a poisonous substance. And that's what toxic people are to our spiritual health and to the mission and the health of a church. They're poisonous. Poisonous. Carrie Newoff warns, 
When someone displays several of these characteristics, they may be a toxic person. Lying. Here's some characteristics. Lying. Manipulation. They are never wrong. They are unwilling to hear feedback. They have hidden agendas. They say they want a peace treaty, but really they want to gouge out your eyes. They have a critical spirit. They're a malicious gossip. They have passive ag aggressive behavior. What, they ha what happens to your face is different than what happens behind your back. Now, we all at different points can display any of these. But if we display many of these, we may be, or we may be dealing with, a toxic situation. Gary Thomas writes that many toxic people can't stand healthy relationships. In essence, what he says is they get bored with health. They get bored in a healthy marriage. They get bored in a healthy church. They want drama. They want problems. They want to raise issues. He says they are master manipulators, and they can be charming in their efforts to get their own way, but they will attack anyone and anything that stands in their way. He goes on to say that the natural Christian response in dealing with toxic people is to try to pour more and more energy and love and care into the relationship, hoping they will change. What he points out is a hard thing for us to understand, but it is a part of wisdom. He points out that's not what's going to be best in that relationship. Jesus said not to cast our pearls, that is what is precious to us, before swine, or they will trample them, the pearls, what's precious to us, under, our, under their feet, and then, Jesus said, they will turn around and tear you to pieces. That's toxic. They trample what's precious, then they tear you to pieces. Jesus said, don't cast your, care, your pearls before them. If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus did not pour a lot of energy and time into the Pharisees whose agenda was to kill him. So again, we need to be careful not to quickly label someone toxic. But, and again, I, I wish I had a whole nother sermon to, because I don't want people to go half-cocked on this. But as a pastor, there are times when situations are toxic. And I have to counsel, and I would counsel. I do not believe in those situations the loving thing is to stay there and be toxicized. That's not a word. Because it's not loving to the person who's, who's being harmed. I'm gouging out your eyes and I'm loving it. And it's not helpful to the person who's toxic. But in because until they are confronted with their sin and the damage of their sin and the, the sense of God separating them, they're never going to have a chance of changing. If we enable their toxicity in the church or in our relationships, we are hurting them. We are not loving them. 
That's why Paul said to the guy that the sinner in the Corinthian church who was having relationships with his father's wife, his stepmother, he said, kick him out. Why? Because you hate him? No. Because you want him to die? No. Because maybe if he's thrown to the place where Satan has his soul, he will see the danger his soul is in and repent. And that's exactly what happened. So again, we need to be careful not to quickly label anyone toxic. But if we identify someone's agenda is to harm other people spiritually, emotionally, reputationally, or otherwise, where they have selfish ambition and hidden agendas and leave behind them a wake of damage and hurt and pain and broken relationships, we should love and we should pray for them, but from a distance. That's my appeal. As we close this morning, relationships are the greatest gift God gives us. The gospel is all about relationship. Jesus came not to establish a, a religion, but a relationship again with us, with God. And then through our being established through Christ, a loving father, a gi adopted child relationship with God, we then become brothers and sisters to one another. And as was read earlier, we show that we're his disciples by the love we have for one another. Jesus came, it was all about relationships. The greatest gift God gives us is relationships. But the greatest challenges we have to navigate in life also often come from relationships. Saul's earliest challenges here were relational. And early on, we'll get to Saul's failures later, but early on, Saul offers us some really healthy relational lessons in dealing with despisers, dividers, and downright toxic people. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, we come before you, Lord. We thank you so much for the relationships that you have built into our lives. They're gifts. We thank you, Lord, that our lives, we long for relationship with you. We're born with a craving for relationship with you. At the same time, sin has broken that relationship. And that's what Jesus, your beautiful son, came to restore. We thank you so much for that, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for one another. That is, brothers and sisters in Christ, imperfectly, flawed, messing up. We can grow in love, humility, patience, forbearance, forgiveness as we relate to one another. I pray this morning, Lord, there may be people that as we talk about these three categories are tracking, maybe with one, maybe with all three. But Father, I pray that you give us the wisdom this morning to not be despisers, be encouragers, and not allow what other people think stop us from doing what you're calling us to do. Help us not to be divisive. Help us to help different camps. Maybe unite 
in Christ. To be peacemakers. And Lord, for those rare situations where someone is damaging and hurtful, help us to pray for that person. To really pray, believing that you can change them. Help us to love them and not hate them. But help us to be wise and not get near to the poison that they want to inject into every situation. Give us wisdom. If someone's in that place, give them wisdom this morning, Lord. Give them wisdom, we pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.